totally fine. Happy to go uh, first. Uh, so good afternoon, everyone. My name is Daniel Valdez. Um, work with Welcoming America, which was mentioned uh, here throughout. Uh, so I'll just little correction. So Welcoming America actually uh, came and started a little bit after this film. So it was the uh, Tennessee and Immigrant Refugee Rights Coalition uh, that uh, David, as well as other folks, uh, David Lubell is the director of Welcoming America. He, uh, along with f other folks in Tennessee, started the, the Tennessee Immigrant and Refugee Rights Coalition because of this uh, wave of anti-immigrant sentiment and laws that were happening both at the, at the local level and at the state level. Things like English-only uh, proposals and initiatives happening in Nashville. And so through Turk, uh, David and others, again, started uh, the Welcoming Tennessee initiative that was really looking to counterbalance the narrative that people were hearing, that, that long-term residents were hearing about newcomers and really bring them together to create meaningful connection and to sort of break down some of the, the ideas that folks were having. And so um, out of that work that was very successful in Nashville and in other places around Tennessee, uh, David saw the need for this type of organizing at the local level uh, with other communities, particularly in the South and in the Midwest, because they have seen these huge demographic shifts happening in the late 90s, early 2000s. And so uh, Welcoming America was started and headquartered in uh, the Atlanta metro area and uh, is a national organization that really takes this model of what was happening in Tennessee and sort of brings it to local communities uh, across the country. And, um, you know, as I mentioned, the growth in immigrant population in the 90s and the 2000s um, it skyrocketed in places like Georgia, like North Carolina, where I live in Charlotte. Uh, my family came from the West Coast when I was uh, 11 years old and moved to a really small town in North Carolina because there was jobs available there. And so my story is that of many others who, uh, who have come uh, to the South and to the Midwest uh, over the past 20 years. And so uh, Welcoming America, what, what we do, and I'll talk a little bit about the work that, that we're doing and uh, pass it on to, to other folks there who can talk a little bit more about what's happening on the ground. Um, so we, uh, David likes to describe our work as sort of the seed and soil analogy, right? And this idea that um, if you think of a, of a person being the seed, um, a lot of organizations at the time were really focusing on watering that seed so that it would grow, uh, but they weren't really paying much attention to the soil and how rich that soil was for that, that, that seed to really grow. And so the work of Welcoming America is really uh, focusing on, on both the, this idea of watering the plant, but also looking at the soil and looking at the receiving community, long-term residents, and how uh, long-term residents uh, need to be prepared and a lot of times have these fears uh, and inside when they see their communities changing in demographics. And so making sure that if you are doing immigrant inclusion work, uh, that that also includes uh, long-term residents and bringing them together uh, around this process. And so what we do at Welcoming America is we have what we call the Welcoming America Network. And it is a network of local governments, city and county governments from across the country, as well as nonprofit organizations that want to create a more welcoming communities. Um, and how that, how that happens, uh, it varies from community to community. And what we do is we provide coaching and technical assistance to these communities so that they can start on their journey. Uh, we meet communities where they're at um, because not every community is ready to do uh, defensive work or are ready to start uh, a legal defense fund, right? Um, or really tackle things like undocumented immigrants. Um, they're maybe in this fearful stage where they're, they're starting to see or their or their city next to them, uh, you know, a, a hundred miles away is, is seeing some demographic shifts. And so uh, we start with communities that, that may be fearful and try to get them through that spectrum of welcoming from fearful to tolerant to welcoming. And so we work with communities uh, that are in that area of, of fearful. We also work with communities that have been doing this for a number of years and um, have implemented some programming and are maybe resettling refugees as well. And they may be more on the tolerant side of that spectrum. Uh, and then we also have a lot of folks in, in our network that are sort of leading the charge when it comes to the way local governments are uh, making sure that their communities are being more welcoming um, as 
Dr. Casey mentioned yesterday, the innovation that's happening at the local level uh, is where David and others saw uh, the greatest potential. And so making sure that we are working with a lot of these innovative communities that um, we can learn from and then we can extrapolate and disseminate the best practices that are happening. Um, our focus has been in the South and the Midwest. We have over 100 communities across the country in just about every region uh, of the country, but the majority of them are in the Midwest and in the South broadly, uh, because we know that these are the places that have the least infrastructure and um, are, are having a lot of uh, anxiety and fears around newcomers. So we, we work with those communities. And I manage our work for the South. So I work with communities from Virginia to Texas uh, and have been going to Tennessee, to Georgia, and Alabama, and other places, and, and, and thinking about how we can help these communities move forward. Um, as far as our receiving community approach, um, we saw you see a little bit of that in the Welcome to Shelbyville uh, documentary, if you've seen it all, but uh, really figuring out how local governments and nonprofits and community leaders can create events and meaningful contact within the newcomer community and long-term residents. Um, and th there's lots of different ways that you can, you can do that. And so we're, we work with nonprofits to really help them think through that. And uh, it could be something as simple as hosting a dinner like you saw in the documentary, right? Food brings people together a lot and, and creates those connections. And so helping uh, organizations think through that um, has been a way in which we've been able to, to help people think about that. We, we help communities think about leadership, communication, and contact. And those are the, sort of the three areas in which we, we think about receiving community approach and, and, and working with the receiving community. So engaging local leaders, and that, in, in a huge aspect of that is the faith leadership in local communities. Engaging them, uh, helping them think through how their own uh, fears and anxieties are being played out and how we can help them sort of go and shift through that narrative that they have about newcomers. Uh, business leaders, government leaders, uh, nonprofit leaders, uh, philanthropic leaders, getting them together and really helping them think through how uh, they can be more effective spokespeople and ambassadors for uh, this, uh, this, this newcomer community. And the other is around communications and how you frame this issue. Um, you notice that a lot of times we talk about newcomers um, or we, uh, the, the language that we choose can either trigger people uh, and they can set them off or they can uh, you know, shut down depending on what you say and how you use. And so helping folks think about the language that they're using and how they're framing the conversation um, is, is very important. Um, and then I'll talk just a couple of, a bit about the, the communities that I think showcase how this religious literacy uh, piece comes into play. Um, not, not too long ago, when I first started with Welcoming America, I had a call from uh, a person uh, in Gainesville, Florida, uh, who, uh, and same thing in Harrisonburg, Virginia, I think they sort of have this parallel uh, story here, and it was just uh, people from the community, they went on our website, uh, they were actually associated with a faith group, um, a sort of an interfaith uh, group, and they reached out and said, we want our city governments to be a welcoming community, and what can we do, and how can we get there? And uh, what, uh, what I did in Gainesville is I helped them think through how they could make that pitch to the local government, and how that uh, how the welcoming work that was happening around the country made sense for their community. Um, and they did that, and they presented to the city council, and um, they were very successful in bringing together all of the faith leaders from these co local communities and really asking the, the local government to think about joining Welcoming America and thinking about how they can uh, create programs and policies at the local level that could make their communities more welcoming. And uh, within a few months, uh, Gainesville, the city of, of, of Gainesville and, and Mayor Poe there uh, signed on to the network and was really excited to be a part of that. And then within a couple of, of months later, the county, the local county, Alachua County, uh, as well did that. Um, and same thing in Harrisonburg. Uh, Virginia, uh, these group of, of folks came together and led uh, in a lot of times by faith communities 
really helping local governments think through how they can do that. And so um, we've been working uh, closely for the past uh, two and a half years with Gainesville and with Harrisonburg and really thinking about what they can do. Um, they're not at the process of where they're doing a policy change necessarily, but they're really trying to sort of prepare the ground for that work and really help communities think about these changes that are happening and helping long-term residents think about why it's important to be a welcoming community and what the benefits are, not just for newcomers, but for everyone in those communities. And so that's been uh, you know, the example of, of ways in which faith leaders have been able to really uh, leverage the role that they play in their communities and really think about how they can bring together local governments to think about how they can be more welcoming for, for newcomers. Um, I, I will uh, stop there. I know I want to leave enough time for us to have some conversation um, about, about the, the work that's happening. And I've had some really rich discussions, particularly yesterday with one of my panelists about sort of all the nuances around this work. And, and I'm looking forward to addressing those in a little bit. Uh, because not everything is, is great. There's lots of challenges happening at the local level. We're getting a lot of pushback uh, from, from folks, um, and, and there are people that are very afraid. I think that after the election, uh, people went one of two ways. They either doubled down and were, they called us and said, you know, I want to be part of this network. I want to I wanna show my support publicly, and, and that was happening in the South and the Midwest and all over the country, and then there were other communities who, uh, said, you know, I, I don't want to ruffle any feathers and I don't know what, what's going to happen with federal and state policy, so we're just going to sort of continue doing our thing. And I, and I think that we had both those kinds of reactions and, and, and we're seeing now a lot of communities really trying to think through how they can get away from the polarization that's happening. Um, and at the end of the day, thinking about the policies and not necessarily the names that you use. So when we think about things like sanctuary policy uh, and welcoming and all those things. I think the most important thing at the end of the day is that uh, communities are able to really create programs and policies that positively affect uh, newcomers and, and all community members. And whatever, whatever word they use to describe that word, if any, uh, shouldn't matter as long as they are doing some work. And so the work that I do and what we wanna do is help communities get there and if it means not signing on officially to the network, but that you are creating work and that you are creating policies, and that's fine too. We just want to be able to make sure that the work is getting done. So thank you, and I will hand it over to my colleague. Thank you. Thank you, uh, Hey there. Hello? Hey there. My name is Abdul Kati. Uh, want to first thank you guys for hosting us, for listening to us, for the time, for the investment in this. Uh, I'm a Syrian immigrant. I moved here in 1998. Lived in Tennessee since then, with the exception of a few months. Uh, I usually I sell drugs for a living, uh, <laughs> legally as a pharmacist. And I'm gonna revisit this because that was in your paper, and you would have not laughed if you read it. Uh, but that's the effectiveness of the work we do in a way, uh, I'm gonna revisit that in just a minute. Uh, I'm a Muslim by faith, uh, lived in Middle Tennessee for about 13 years now. Uh, I've lived all the, what you heard and more. Uh, it's a fraction of what happens in Tennessee. In my opinion, Tennessee is a testing ground for any xenophobia, hate legislations nationwide. It usually starts there. Specific senators always are the ones proposing them and uh, it moves from there to the national level. Uh, back in 2008, the first major incident that made news was the burning down of the Islamic Center of Colombia. Dawood Abu Diab is a personal friend. Uh, so I've, I'm aware of that, I'm aware of the reasons it happened. The two individuals that did the arson were kids, literally under the age of 20. The next thing that happened with the Islamic Center of Murfreesboro. Uh, I was the vice president of the Islamic Center of Murfreesboro during the controversy. I'm the one that signed the contract for the property that it was built on. So I lived through that period of life as well. The anti-Sharia bill that was proposed by Ketron and Matthias. Uh, I was also part of the force that helped uh, water it down uh, and eliminate it. Then after that, Things continued, they didn't stop vandalisms, arsons, the threats, educational bills, anti-immigrants bills, 
and a lot of other things. Most recently, Wildlife Matter rally coming to Tennessee because it's a fertile ground for refugees. And uh, with the help of a lot of people, we took lead force in stopping that. All these things happened in the last 12, 13 years that I was personally involved in. I've learned a lot from them, and what I want to do today is to share some of those lessons and tell you where we took that to. Uh, the one event that's not Middle Tennessee related that really shaped my understanding and changed my direction was the Chapel Hill shooting in North Carolina about three years ago. I personally knew the family. Uh, Dia was my, I mean, I've known him since he was a baby. It affected me personally on a deep level, and it made me realize something that I was part of the problem. Uh, and I'll explain that in just a minute to all of you. So the lessons I've learned, there's something that I call is ironic, I call it the bubble syndrome. Immigrants, minorities in general, retract to a safety zone the minute they feel threatened, which means if there's an anti-Latino bill, Muslims are threatened and they retract. When they retract, they lose. They lose ground, they lose visibility, stereotypes surface and there's nobody to defend it. That's a problem. Second realization, my faith is my faith, or is it? I know this is an odd statement. Historically, we Muslims in particular, and I think that applies to most faith, we have our strong belief in our certain laws and regulations. We tend to apply it to others. We tend to judge you. So if you drink, you're a bad person. If you are gay, then you're a bad person. If you do this, because it's forbidden in my faith. And one biggest realization that was wrong, fundamentally Islamically wrong. My faith is my faith is wrong for me to do, but who am I to judge you if you do it? And that was a big transformation in my ability to create relationship with others. Develop relationship beyond the crashing point at the hallways, the five minute conversation on the bus, on the subway, to take it an actual friendship, meaningful relationship. The next one is, I hear this a lot and it upsets me, that we want to strive for tolerance. Tolerance is petty. Don't strive for tolerance. Now I can start with tolerance, and I can take it to mutual respect, then I can take it to working with you on big projects to change our community together as whole, like you said yesterday. But it takes a whole lot more than tolerance. If you're going to work on yourself for weeks to be tolerant of others, re-examine your faith and your understanding. The next thing is, we're not a melting pot, guys. We are not a melting pot. We're a salad. We're a variety of vegetables, different colors, different shapes, all put together to form a beautiful, well-presented, like the lunch we had. But we all gonna look the same if this whole university was the same kind of building all painted in white. It's gonna look ugly. And we don't want that. The next realization I had, we, as people of faith, need to pray with our feet and hands, not with our mouth. We need to quit doing that. I don't want your prayers and thoughts anymore. I am sick and tired of them. If you're not gonna take that prayers and thoughts to action, just don't pray. I know this is a rough tema in the divinity school. Uh, <laughs> the next thing I've learned, you have to give till it hurts. If you're a person of color, if you're a minority, you have to give, you have to do until it hurts. And that's when change happens. Don't quit. Um, the last one, which was a personal lesson that I started with, if you want to inflict change in your community, you have to be willing to change. If you're not willing to change, you're not gonna change anything. So keep this in mind as we proceed. Why do they hate us? It's a big question. And it's not relative to ISIS, it's relative to what life matters. Why do they hate us? That comes up all the time. So if you look at the roots of it, in the United States, don't believe the illusion that they hate immigrants. They don't hate immigrants. They have colorful colored immigrants, and they hate people from other faiths who are immigrants. And that's the reality. So it's rooted in two things. It's rooted in religious illiteracy, and I want to expand the term here, and I am in no way an academic person. Religious illiteracy of your own faith is a problem, in addition to your religious illiteracy with other faith, and that's another problem. So first, they hate you because you're a person of color. They hate you because you're of a different faith. 
So we have two core problems, religious literacy and racism. I'm not gonna address racism, that would take the next two weeks. Uh, next one is economical reasons. Most individuals who traditionally vote for conservative reasons vote because of economy, and this is a fact, because the other side can sell it, and they can sell it well, especially in Auburn, Tennessee, in Bellbuckle, in Shelbyville, in, 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 in Evansville, and I can tell you why they can sell it well, because we're not there. We don't exist, they don't see us. Next is political agendas. Politicians, and I, I apologize for Mr. Casey in advance, will sell their souls for a vote. So our politicians in Tennessee know how to get the votes. So if you can prove to them that you can get them vote, they will do whatever you want. And I promise you that. They're not people of principles. They may appear so, but they're not. The next thing is the media. Now we lose the media constantly, and that's what was brought up yesterday. So why do they hate us? Because of the media. Because every time you turn the radio, you turn the TV, and it's about Muslims, you know what's gonna say? We all know that. If it's about Afro-Americans, we know what the conversation is about. We already know, we don't have to wait. It is hard to see us being portrayed positively in the media. And the reason for that is we're not doing a good job at it. We're not reaching out to them properly. We're not effectively, meaningfully making a difference that attract the media's attention in a way, and there are other reasons for that. So my son, who was nine years old about two years ago, when Mr. Trump announced that he's gonna build a wall, we were talking in the car, and he said, I hope he builds it with Legos. <laughs> and I was like, why would you want him to build it with Legos? He said, this way we can take the same blocks and build a bridge. So this is, at that moment I said, this is what we're doing. This is exactly what we're doing. So individuals who are hateful, who are xenophobic, based on principles, the same principles we have. They just misunderstand them. So instead of us saying, for a minute, let's think together here out loud, instead of us saying, I'm gonna destroy the basis of hate, I'm gonna destroy, that's his faith. He understands Christianity to preach that. He understands his values to be that way. So let's not destroy it, let's reshape it. Let's take that same piece that he already have deep, heart-filled belief in it and change it around. How do we do that? Events like this, activities, educational, open houses and mosques, open houses and events, they built us vertically. We continue to go higher and higher. We can see all the ground of hate around us for miles, but we're not expanding our base. We're staying the same. We're not, we're not growing in a productive way. While the other groups are staying close to the ground, digging further and further into the ground with deeper roots. So how do we change that? I have to come down from my tower that I climbed up to and go to the mud where the roots are and start digging. How do you do that? This is what we're doing right now. About three years ago, right after the Chapel Hill shooting, uh, I lived at Islamic Center of Murfreesboro. I lived what you call organized religion in, as far as in, in administration capacity. And I started something called the Murfreesboro Muslim Youth. The idea was to help Muslim youth who are in bubbles, like we talked about, connect, develop, get education, and teach us in a meaningful way how to become community activists, start community initiatives, and build a community based on mutual respect and working together with others. We do a lot of stuff. We do it in an extremely unusual way. So with the line of thinking that I just mentioned, with the lessons I personally learned, we don't open our own food bank. There's a successful Christian food bank in town. So we go there and say, what can we do to help you be better? Let's partner together. And the first time you talk to them, said, huh? What? You're Muslims and you want to help us? We're not going to put your name on the label. We don't want our name on the label. We're not going to let people see you with us. That's fine with us. You do it the first time, you do it the second time. And that tolerance piece starts appearing. They're sitting in a dark room and you just punctured a hole in the wall and the light is coming in, they're curious. They wanna see more. They start peeking out. And next thing you know, they wanna open that door and walk out to the sun. 
This is my own theology. Uh, so Star Community Service, we connected with organizations across the board, Christians, LGBTAs, Jewish organizations, say, what can we do together? How can we build more relationship together? Relationships start developing in an amazing, fascinating way. Then we started our refugee works about two years ago. We start helping Syrian refugees, saying, hey, Syrian refugees are pouring into here. Let's create meaningful relationship with them. So we start helping Syrian refugees. Then we start helping every refugee in our county. And that's why we met with a group called Roots for Refugees, who are Christian Baptist-based organization. And about a month into working with each other, say, what's the point of having two organizations? Let's come together as one organization. And next thing you know, and everyone's scratching his head confused, a Muslim organization has a director of refugee services who's Christian. And it works. And I can show you results of it. All of a sudden, in Middle Tennessee, in Murfreesboro, the Murfreesboro Muslim youth are having articles in the front page, not about terrorism, not about any problem, but about us doing work, meaningful work. Change happens. You see someone posting, posting something negative about Muslims on murfreesboro.com or any local blog, and I don't have to say a word anymore. There are 50 people stepping up saying, you don't know, they brought food to my house when I had a problem. When my house burned down, this happened. And I'm saying that change took time, and it will continue to take time. I'm almost out of time. Uh, this is what we're doing. It's different. It's working. We're failing, we're succeeding, we're learning, we're growing. It's making a difference on the ground. It's making a difference in the hearts of people. At one point, we have to realize we have more in common than we have in difference. And if you want to change hate to love, you have to step down from your castle and go to the ground where there's hate and tell them, how can we get together on a common ground? How can we build relationship, build a mutual respect and love for the betterness of our children and our community? Thank you so much. Hi, my name is, uh, is the mic on? Okay, great. Uh, my name is Melissa Borja. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of American Culture at the University of Michigan. And I'm really grateful to be here in part because I really owe my career to this room where I first studied religious history um, and also this research that I do on refugee care and religious pluralism began with a grant that was given to me by the Center for the Study of World Religions 16 years ago. So if you are writing a report about the impact of your um, research supports long-term impact here. Um, and I'm also especially grateful for Kim's film, which is the basis of our panel today, um, and particularly the second part that you showed. Um, the University of Michigan right now is debating whether or not Richard Spencer should be able to speak on campus, and so maybe um, I hope you won't have to visit Ann Arbor to see what an alt-right rally would look like there, um, but it's useful to know what it does look like and, and terrifying. So I'm grateful for your work. So some background about me. I'm, I'm a scholar of immigration primarily, um, but I also study politics, um, especially American political development, uh, refugee issues, um, Asian American studies, and religion. And I'm here to offer a historical perspective, which I, I think we've found to be useful in other panels. Um, broadly, my work examines how the United States government delegates work of refugee care to religious institutions and how this in turn actually has had a big impact on refugees' religious choices. Um, I focus on Southeast Asian refugees, uh, so in particular the Hmong who came from Laos. And um, it is really interesting to see how American refugee resettlement policies, even if they are facially neutral, actually profoundly disrupted the practice of indigenous Hmong religion. At the same time, they set up close and influential relationships with Christian organizations that were responsible for resettling them. Okay, so this had a really big impact on the religious lives of Hmong refugees. And it matters for two big reasons. First, we often talk about religion as a free market in the United States. But the truth is that the state structures that market. It is a putatively free market. It's not actually a free market at all. 
And I've also found that even if we talk about religious pluralism and we have that as a goal, the truth is that it's really difficult to put that into practice. We're actually quite bad at it. So we can talk about respecting people across boundaries of religious difference, but we aren't very experienced. In the absence of meaningful religious literacy, we are quite um, bad at making good on these commitments to religious freedom and religious pluralism. So my comments that I prepared today deal primarily with the case study that um, was distributed in advance of this session and, and less so the, the film. And I think history offers us uh, some valuable lessons on the issue of religion and refugee care. So I offer four, four lessons that my historical research, I think, uh, helps us see. Lesson number one, hostility against refugees is not new. And we sh would be really foolish to think that the hostility that we're seeing in Tennessee or elsewhere in the United States is a new phenomenon. Now let me tell you about a town that resettled 1,500 refugees uh, almost four decades ago. It was actually a town called Niceville. That's actually the name of the town, Niceville. They were not so nice. The New York Times visited them and they interviewed a bunch of people who were living in that town. And here's some of the quotes from the New York Times profile of Niceville. As far as I'm concerned, they can ship them all right back, said one woman. There's no telling what kind of diseases they'll be bringing with them, said another person. We've got enough of our own problems to take care of. They don't even have enough money to take Social Security now, and they want to bring in more people, said two people in a barbershop. How do you know we're not getting the bad guys? You can't say for sure. Nobody can, and Lord knows we got enough communist infiltration now. And at a nearby public high school, students were actually talking about organizing a Gook Klux Klan. Now, there's a lot of similarity between these arguments about Vietnamese refugees and the arguments we saw um, in Shelbyville. And uh, the concerns about economic competition, national security, dirtiness and cleanliness, cultural and religious difference, and straight up racism is something we see over and over again. I think a long view of attitudes about refugees over the 20th century is also very illuminating. You might be surprised to know that attitudes about refugees are maybe even more positive in the 21st century than they were earlier um, in American history. To give you some figures, in May 1975, one poll found that 36% of Americans said that the US should resettle Vietnamese refugees. 54% said it should not. Let's compare that to public opinion about Jewish refugees earlier. In January 1939, only 30% said the US should resettle Jewish refugees. 61% said it should not. And let's compare that to attitudes about Syrian refugees um, into October 2016. 41% of registered American voters said that the US should accept Syrian refugees. 54% said it should not. So in all three cases, a majority of the American population said we don't want refugees. So we need to remember that this hostility to immigrants, this hostility to refugees, is part of the American DNA. And it goes back even to the founding, where an ambivalence about migration can be seen even in the 18th century. Now this hostility is especially powerful when it's directed against people who are religious minorities and ethno-racial minorities who are seen as non-Americans because of how they look and how they worship. And I should add some hope. Hostility does appear to diminish when people in host communities have a clear understanding of the circumstances that brought people to the US. For example, once Americans knew that Hmong refugees were coming to the United States because they had been US allies during the secret war in Laos, they were a lot more welcoming. Once they knew the suffering that they had endured in refugee camps, they were a lot more welcoming. So lesson number two. Refugee resettlement, as we well know, is a public, private, and church-state endeavor, and this can be a good thing. Now, there's a broader scholarly literature already mentioned earlier today about how the United States is kind of unusual in that it's characterized by a state that's quite different from what you see in Europe. It's characterized by, by what people have described as public-private governance, the associational state. Someone even once described it as a Rube Goldberg contraption because you have so many different institutions, public and private, that together comprise the American state. Now, refugee resettlement, I think, is a really good example 
of how we organize government in the United States. And refugee resettlement is also really interesting because religious institutions have a really long history of being central to this public-private church-state enterprise that is refugee care. Religious institutions have been involved in refugee care since World War II. They work with government at all levels. They work with government overseas. They work with government at the national level, state level, and local level. And they're involved not only in the immediate needs of refugees after they arrive in the United States, but in the long-term integration programs. And they can do a lot of good. They expand the capacity of government. They reduce the public cost of refugee resettlement. And as was mentioned earlier, I think you could also argue that religious organizations take on the cost of resettlement that should arguably be taken on by government um, to a greater degree. A 2008 study found um, that the State Department actually funded only 39% of the actual cost of resettling refugees, and private giving covered the remaining 61%. And that's not unique to now. Um, in 1975, there was a report given to Congress and it found that um, to resettle a family, when a Beth, uh, Lutheran church in Minneapolis resettled a family from Vietnam, it cost $5,000 to resettle that family effectively. That didn't even count all of the things they could have counted. Um, and the uh, voluntary agencies get, well, they got at that time about $500 per person. Okay, so this has long been a very key imbalance. Religious institutions, in addition to carrying most of the cost of refugee care, can do a lot socially. They can offer a network of caring support for refugees and broker relations between refugees and the broader community when there is hostility. So we saw that with Shelbyville, we see this also in places like Minnesota where there's a lot of antipathy directed towards Hmong people. Lesson number three, delegating work to religious institutions does come at a cost. So we should resist the temptation to see religious institutions as just another type of private institution. Because the truth is, they have different goals, they have different organizational structures, um, and so it is really problematic to see them as basically the same as just any other private institution. One thing that also makes it complicated to use religious institutions is the changing context. Now, historically, religious voluntary agencies have resettled their own people. Catholics resettled Catholics, Lutherans resettled Lutherans. That changed in the 1970s when Ugandan Asian refugees first came to the United States, and then especially when Southeast Asian refugees came from Laos, Cambodia, and Vietnam. So at that moment, Christian organizations had to learn how to adapt to new circumstances of religious pluralism. And they were very nervous about this. They were quite open about their anxiety about this work. And they tried really hard to practice refugee care in a pluralistic way. But we can't assume that they actually did. And this raises the big question. So much of the conversation about religious freedom and religious pluralism focuses on the freedoms and needs of the giver of help, and not enough on the experiences of people who receive the help, in this particular case, refugees. So if you talk to refugees, what do they say? Well, I think in general, if you look at the archival evidence, talking to both refugee, refugees and people who provide refugee services, I think in general you can say that Christian groups have sincerely strived to provide refugees uh, services in a way that respects religious difference. Um, the religious voluntary agencies provide these uh, elaborate orientation manuals to help sponsors know more about the religions of the people they're caring for and the cultural backgrounds of refugees. Um, but the problem is inherent in the structure. Accountability is difficult to ensure when you have a whole system that has delegated chains, okay? So if you delegate work to professionalized voluntary agencies and they in turn delegate more work to the local affiliates and they in turn delegate work to congregations, how can you make sure those volunteers at the very local level are approaching refugee care in the same way that the more professionalized staff at the national level are approaching it. And there's, a, a, there's a, such a distance that the people at the very local level don't even see the work that they're doing as having anything to do with government. They describe it entirely as religious work and not as anything that has to do with government. And refugees themselves often talk about feeling coerced, feeling pressure, literally being picked up every Sunday morning and brought to a church against their will. Um, and it 
put refugees who are dependent on these religious communities in very difficult situations. Part of the problem also is that the religious organizations that were responsible for caring for refugees got very little to no information about the religious groups or the refugee groups that they were resettling. Um, and if they did get information, sometimes it was very bad information. So for, about the, for the Hmong, for example, um, most of the information that was in the Lutheran orientation manuals actually came from the dissertation of a former missionary in Laos from the 1950s. And that information was very biased. It, it presented um, Hmong indigenous religion as primitive, as evil, um, and that was reprinted over and over again in the resettlement manuals that were distributed across the country. So in the absence of information, they had some information, and even that information was not very good. My final lesson, delegating work to religious groups raises um, concerns and also very big questions that are also very simple questions, which is this. What is religion? And I, I often joke that if you go to any religious studies conference, it always ends up with this question, well, what is religion anyway? <laughs> so we can't have this event without me raising this question, well, what is religion anyway? I'm doing my duty. Um, so there's, there's, this question is relevant with regard to this question of what is religious in faith-based refugee work. If you bring someone to your church, you might see it as a non-religious act because your goal is to provide community. And you might make that distinction. I am not doing this for the religious purpose of converting them, I'm doing this for the non-religious purpose of helping them have friends. But the people who are being invited to church, the refugees, will still see it as religious work. And this is all very sort of artificial distinctions because while the guidance from some of the voluntary agencies and the orientation manuals will say this is okay, this is not okay, it's all sort of um, um, motivated by a religious commitment to help other people. So um, what is religious, what is non-religious, this is a sort of sticky question. There's also the question of what gets to count as religion. So religious pluralism is predicated on this idea that people have this thing that's identifiable as religion. But what if you have a group of refugees, like the Hmong, like the Yazidi people, who have beliefs and practices that are not immediately recognizable as religion? What position does the system put them in? Put them in a very difficult situation. Because you can't respect their religions if you don't recognize what they have as religious in the first place. And so this is a, it's a tricky situation. I'll close with one, one story, um, because we're focused on religious literacy today. In 1976, Congress declared it illegal for census to ask people to identify their religion. Um, that same year, we were accepting lots of refugees from Laos. And actually, when those refugees were admitted to the United States and were applying for resettlement, they had to identify their religion. So you can already see a different treatment there. And when Hmong people were asked to identify their religion, they were given a form and some check boxes. You could check Catholic, you could check Protestant, you could check Buddhist, you could check animist or ancestor worshiper. Now, if you know anything about Hmong people, you know that they could check any of the last three boxes, usually about 80% um, could check Buddhist, animist, and ancestor worshiper. But they could only check one. And you can imagine this conundrum. Well, what is my religion? Uh, and I can only check one. For a very brief time in 1979, they switched to a different form. It was a completely blank space, and you can just write in, like free response style. And that was very interesting because all of these Hmong refugees wrote Hmong religion as their religion, okay? Now, I think this is a really illuminating example because it challenges us to think, how many times do we fit groups we don't understand into categories that don't work? Okay, and we need to think about how that operates with regard to religion, but all sorts of other things um, related to culture um, and society and politics. Are we understanding refugees on their own terms or on ours? Are we integrating them into American society on their terms or on ours? And we need to really so think about our assumptions of how we do refugee care in America. Thank you. Thank you. Wonderful. Thank, thank you all uh, for your, both your presentation and your comments. 
So we will uh, open up the floor. We're, we're 15 minutes late because of our tech issues, but we will cut the final panel 15 minutes, so we'll start that at 3.45. So we'll have 15 minutes for questions and comments. And again, I forgot to remind people, if you could identify yourself, Amy, then that would be useful, and then your question, thanks. Sure. Um, I'm Amy Sullivan, I'm a journalist, and I'm gonna be on the next panel. But um, Daniel, I was wondering, you had mentioned that uh, your work has gotten a little harder since the election last year, that in some places it's inspired people to double down and think this is incredibly important to do, and in others, people are uh, more hesitant. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit more about the um, resistance that you've encountered and kind of if you're noticing anything about where it's coming from, if um, there are arguments that help overcome it, um, and particularly uh, maybe where some of these concerns, if they're bubbling up locally of, you know, I think, you know, my county voted overwhelmingly for Trump. That tells me that maybe this is not a popular thing to do right now, or if it's kind of more um, external from what they're seeing on TV and, and kind of national coverage of this. Yeah, I would say it's a, it's a combination of those things. And one of the things that we are doing is exploring a little bit more around some of these communities that, for example, voted uh, for Obama. Uh, twice and then went to Trump and figure out sort of what, what's going on there, uh, particularly in areas of the Midwest and counties there. And so we are starting some what we call middle America work to start, to start thinking about what is it that folks really are thinking and what are some of the, the things behind. Uh, I, I say some of the fears that folks have, uh, elected officials in particular or, or, or government officials, um, has been around just some misinformation about what, what does what does it mean to get this designation of a welcoming city vis-a-vis -a, -vis a sanctuary city, for example, right? And sort of those distinctions. Um, our, our goal uh, and our hope is that um, communities um, are able to really join the network so that they can start thinking about the, the, the kinds of things that they could do. Uh, joining the network doesn't necessarily mean that you have to have all these things in place, where I think that's a distinction of the, of the sanctuary movement, and I think that a lot of times uh, we, do, uh, we do think that uh, safe communities and, and good relationships between newcomers and police departments are key to a welcoming community, and so there are different ways of getting at that as well, and, and, and certainly see uh, the benefits of, of that happening in those communities. Um, as far as... Uh, the, 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 the resistance as well of communities, I think, um, is just uh, what's, what they're seeing in the, in the local media, what they're seeing in the news, what's coming out. Um, and there's also, I think, in a lot of places, uh, statewide policies. Uh, that really, I think, have a, an even more direct impact than federal policy. A lot of state legislatures preventing cities uh, from doing things, or they feel like if they do something, then the state legislature will enact a, a policy at the state level that would prevent them and other cities from doing that future work. And I can take, for example, Charlotte and what happened with the bathroom bill, right? Uh, this, this bill around uh, folks to be able to use um, any bathroom that they wanted to um, had already been happening in other cities across the state. Uh, but it was when Charlotte picked it up and decided to do it that sort of caught the attention of the state legislature and, and, and passed uh, a law that really prevented other communities from doing that. But the fact is that other communities had already been doing this, had these types of policies in the books for years. Um, and so there's a lot of fear from communities uh, that are uh, progressive, but that feel like they may be uh, they may attract more attention from the state governments that could potentially um, deprive other municipal governments from doing that work as well. Um, at the same time, we're also seeing sort of a bubbling up of communities coming together as a state-wide network to really advocate and to really push for that. I think Ohio is a great example. We have a number of cities in Ohio that are part of the Welcoming America Network. And over the past couple of years, they've actually started creating their own statewide network. Um, in the past, they were very uh, unsuccessful in talking to 
the governor's office and getting and getting getting in front of the governor to talk about issues of welcoming and, and immigrant inclusion. And as a network, now I think it's a total of eight cities. Uh, they've created a network that now they've been able to get uh, some traction with the governor's office and really start thinking about creating a, a state office for, for welcoming or immigrant inclusion work, similar to what other states have uh, around the country. So um, I think that, that that's also been very positive for communities. Great, thank you. Hello, uh, my name is Salman Ahmed. I'm a physician uh, at the Brigham. Thank you so much for having this event. Um, and thank you all for all the work that you've been doing out in communities across the country. Uh, my question is, um, you know, one of the things that I think we challenge, that challenges us is we're told and we experience that the nature of civil discourse in this country seems to have deteriorated. That's what we see on TV. We may have had personal interactions with people that make us feel that way. Um, you all are courageous people who are bucking the trend and really trying to fight for more civil discourse and very um, civilized discourse. So what have your experiences been with regards to that? Is civil discourse really deteriorating or is that just you know, something that we just kind of hear and see um, but not experience? Hmm. I've already talked too much. <laughs> Which is part of, I think, well, a way of getting, it, just, it, just listen. Yeah, I mean, one thing that I was saying earlier is that um, that, that man you saw in the clip who says, from what I know, you know, they're out to kill us. It, had, it, it, it landed differently on me nine years ago than it does today. I'm not sure what that means about your question, but I do think the, the backdrop and the capacity to have, any, to have empathy, I think as Abdul was saying, you have to really do more work to climb down and dig. Wouldn't you say that? I mean, it, it's, um, it's more challenging or your, your analogy with the bridge of your son, I think it's more challenging to see that bridge and find more and more that it's, you know, with some of those faces, it's like, okay, there's no bridge here. There's no, I can't get there from here. So in, that's, in that sense, it feels um, to me more discouraging. Um, and at the same time, I've been traveling the country with another film that has to do with guns and just got back from Iowa and I was actually more encouraged that people were having civil discourse in a way they haven't been able to see in the media in small towns. I think from, uh, it depends on what lens you're using to look at it. Uh, it's really different. If, if you, you can see it deteriorating or just growing better, improving. And I think from my end, in my city, I look for the problems because you see where the problem is, that's where you need to work. Uh, and I think that's in a way a common ground for most people here. We're interested in the discourse because we see it as a problem, but don't forget to look at the broad side because it's there in abundance as well. I actually don't think discourse has deteriorated. I think it's always been, there's always been some really hateful rhetoric. I do think trust in institutions that offer more space for common ground has deteriorated. And that is deeply concerning to me. So the um, reduced trust that people have in mainstream media, in universities, um, in science, that is deeply concerning. And in the absence of any sort of trust and consensus about what reliable knowledge is, we're going to continue to have fractured discourses. Um, thank you for a wonderful presentation. I have, uh, my name is Shino, I'm originally from Japan. I'm doing PhD in global governance, human security. I have a question to Professor Melissa Borja. Um, so I, I read about, about the American Political Science Association's book. Um, it says that there is a hierarchy in terms of refugee protection among Western countries. Now Western countries tend to prioritize to protect refugees who are Christians and um, persecuted by uh, Muslims. And I also like your argument how religious institutions in the United States um, take this opportunity to promote Christianity somehow. 
um, if I understand correctly, but um, how should we understand this um, phenomenon from the perspective of the First Amendment? Do these institution um, are complete, are these institutions completely independent from the government and without having any financial assistance or um, refugees are not American citizens? It, so um, First Amendment issues of establishment, establishment clause is completely ignored or um, uh, we can see it as um, unproblematic. <laughs> um. Um, big questions. Uh, I, on the second question, the United States government has delegated refugee work to religious institutions for decades and decades and decades. And, um, and I, I don't see and have not seen any pushback to that institutional arrangement. Um, and primarily it's because it's politically expedient. Uh, no one wants to pay for refugees to be resettled. So it's useful for the government to shift that burden on private institutions. Um, and in turn, the religious institutions have a deep moral commitment to seeing those refugees arrive in the United States. And so um, no, no one's really questioning that arrangement. Um, I, I will say that there are efforts to sort of honor these commitments to religious freedom. And um, they do try to help these religious organizations um, at multiple levels to um, play by the rules um, and not proselytize. And, and I do think that there are, uh, there is evidence of serious efforts to do so. I, I think the issue primarily is uh, accountability and the, the, the challenges that are inherent to the particular structure, institutional structure of refugee care. Um, as for your first question, uh, I think some of those issues related to current policy are being battled out in courts right now about whether or not certain religious groups can get priority or, or others. I will say, from what I have seen in the archives for the groups I have researched, Christians have not directly been prioritized over others, although you see in practice refugee resettlement policy still um, allowing Christians in first. And it's not because of a direct preference for Christians, but because of indirect um, processes. So for example, after the Vietnam War, if you had any direct contact or uh, collaboration with the US government, then you were given higher priority. Um, and a lot of the people who had been in the military uh, in Laos working with the special guerrilla units were Christian. And so it's sort of an indirect consequence there. Uh, in general, I think you could say that the United States likes to help people they see as allies. So that is the primary characteristic of American refugee policy throughout uh, history. They reward allies. Thank you. I think we have time for uh, one more question. Okay. Amelia Cohen. So what happens with uh, refugees with bona fide reasons for being refugees who aren't affiliated religiously or don't wish to affiliate religiously? Do they get lost by the wayside or otherwise dealt with? As far as I know, they, it's not a requirement for them to have a religion when they are admitted into the United States, as far as I know. Um, Yeah, and, and people oftentimes do not have a religion and, and still get assigned a voluntary agency to help them. But you raise an interesting question, which is, if you have a lot of networks of care that are premised on a shared religious identity, then people can fall through the cracks. And this is actually a concern I have in responses to undocumented people. If we're going to reach out to undocumented people through communities of faith, what are you going to do about all of the Chinese undocumented people who do not belong to an institutionalized religion? No, I think that you're going to miss a lot of people if you're going to work primarily through those channels. Just let me also just quickly respond to that. Uh, so we've got a new report that, that the Religious Literacy Project put out with Oxfam, and we did an investigation into the religious literacy of humanitarian aid organizations. 
and it was just a very preliminary study. Uh, but the but there were several interesting findings. I think the most important finding um, is that the lack of understanding about religion is both true for sectarian organizations as well as to faith-inspired faith or faith-based organizations. But the other thing that's really clear, and we heard it this morning, many of the faith-inspired or faith-based organizations uh, are not uh, acting out of uh, any kind of proselytizing effort. They really are, their, their, mo their own motivations are about their religious commitments. This is not true for all of them, though. I want to say, there's very, we also have others who do actually it, very explicitly and then sometimes unintentionally have uh, expectations, proselytizing expectations. But the, 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 a very large, major, major, a, a large majority of the faith-inspired uh, humanitarian aid organizations uh, do not have a, they don't, they don't, they're not motivated in any way by the religion of who they're serving. And I just want to make sure that we understand that there's a diversity there and a really important one. So we are uh, out of time for this particular panel. So let's please, uh, please thank our panelists.